Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 97 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have news that Public Health England has reduced the time which it is going to keep contact details gathered during the COVID-19 track and trace programme. With the 4th of July now set for the opening date for pubs, restaurants and other entertainment venues, we look at what the GDPR implications are of their requirements now to keep details to aid the COVID-19 track and trace programme. We've had a number of inquiries this week about temperature checking your employees and visitors and what you need to do GDPR-wise in that sense. And so we've dedicated an article to that, so you can find out all that's involved with GDPR and temperature checking your employees. COVID-19 has put a change to the way that children's exam grades are going to be calculated this year. And so we've asked the ICO whether the new way of working will affect the exam script exemption under GDPR. And so listen to that article and get the answers on that. We then have news that the Bidon Group have won a UTA grant to develop a GDPR-compliant COVID-19 certification programme. Moving away from COVID-19, we then have an update on the Capital One data breach and that Capital One have lost their appeal this week in the US District Court. We then look at news from Apple from their developer conference this week where Apple have introduced a privacy option which could severely impact in-app advertising on Apple iPhone applications. We then travel to New Zealand where the New Zealand Parliament this week has approved updates to their Privacy Act to bring it more into line with the requirements of GDPR. We then have news from the Isle of Man where the Isle of Man Information Commissioner has issued a fine to the Isle of Man Home Affairs Department for a failure to comply with data subject access requests. We then have news of a new data breach at Twitter which is affecting its business users. And we then have news that staff are leaving South Gloucestershire Council after a number of data breaches affecting their children's services department. And finally this week, we end with a thought piece on why your DPO must be able to think independently. So, as usual, another packed episode of the GDPR Weekly Show for you. We do hope that you find all the articles useful and informative. If you ever have any feedback for us, please always send it to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com we do read every single piece of feedback that we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggested improvements into the show unfortunately due to the volume of feedback that we receive though we're not able to answer each email individually as we head up to our 100th episode we are getting more and more entries into our competition so do listen out for details of that and also we're very proud this week to announce that we are one of the nominations for the listeners choice award at the British Podcast Awards. And so listen out during the show for details of how you can vote for us at the British Podcast Awards. And obviously we really appreciate your vote. And if you've got any friends or colleagues, even if they don't regularly listen to the show, but you can encourage them to vote for us because you like the show so much, then please do show your support for the show because the more votes we get, the more chance we stand of winning. And that's good not just for us, but for the whole GDPR community. So if you can... Please follow the instructions when you get to that part of the show. Vote for us, and we really appreciate your ongoing support. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. 
Back in episode 89 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news of the NHS Digital and Public Health England COVID-19 tracking app, which was being trialled on the Isle of Wight, and as we reported last week, has now been abandoned. But one issue which we did cover there was the length of time that Public Health England would be storing the data from that app, and at the time they said that they wouldn't be storing the data for 20 years, which did raise some concerns amongst many in the GDPR community. This week they've updated that statement to say that the data that they collect, both from any Top ID 19 app they may introduce in the future, but also crucially from the telephone track and trace service which the NHS and Public Health England are now running, is going to be kept for eight years. And they've indicated that the information will be things like full name, date of birth, address, email address and telephone number. And they're going to keep information for eight years, which they feel at the moment is justified because they're saying that they need that in case there are any second outbreaks of the disease and also to help them track how the disease spreads. So, eight years is definitely better than 20 years. Personally, I still would like to see that come down probably to five years, but eight years, I think, is a livable compromise. Like many things in the GDPR arena and with COVID-19, it's still a movable feast. So, if we receive any further updates on this from Public Health England or the NHS, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. This is an important coronavirus update. Many within the UK hospitality industry, whether that be a pub, a bar, a restaurant, cafe, all reacted with joy, I think, at Boris Johnson's announcement that the hospitality sector as a whole, with the exception of theatres, could reopen on Saturday the 4th of July, which probably will give citizens in the UK as much excitement over the 4th of July as, of course, our friends across the pond in the US do, as, of course, it's long been US Independence Day. However, as is so often the case, there's a downside as well as an upside to this reopening, and the downside comes in form of GDPR and what data needs to be collected. The first thing to say is that it's crucially important that if you run a bar a cafe, a restaurant, or any entertainment venue which is now allowed to open, that you are already registered under GDPR. Now, of course, hopefully you would all be registered anyway, because you almost certainly should be, because most of you will be keeping details of your employees, and if you keep details of your employees, then you should be registered under GDPR. But I suspect, in reality, there are a number of facilities out there, restaurants, cafes, etc., and pubs, who aren't registered under GDPR because they never really realised it applied to them. Well, now it most definitely does apply. So, first thing to do, if you've not already done it, is get yourself onto the ico.gov.uk website and get yourself registered for GDPR. The next thing, then, is that you need a privacy policy. And again, you may have a privacy policy. If you have a website already, you might have a privacy policy. It may or may not be GDPR compliant, but you should have a privacy policy. But you now most definitely need a GDPR-compliant privacy policy, and you need that whether you are a pub, a restaurant, or whatever. Even if you don't have a website, you still need a privacy policy. The good news is, is that we've made a suitable privacy policy available for download from our website at www.gdprweeklyshow.com. So if you go there, you can download a sample privacy policy, All you're going to need to do is to edit it to put in your own details and 
there you go, you've got what you're going to need to collect the data under GDPR. We recommend that after you've printed your privacy policy, you laminate several copies of it and keep them behind your bar or counter. And then should a customer ask to see the privacy policy, which some might, then you'll have it available and can just simply put it in front of them and they can read it at their leisure. So that's all good. You do need some other policies as well, and we explain those a bit on the documentation, which is available for download, but not going to worry about those right at this moment on this broadcast. However, there are other things that you need to do, and this is crucial. And by the way, what I'm talking about here for pubs, restaurants, etc., also applies if you run a local club. So if you run a bridge club and you're going to restart your meetings now that village halls and community centres, etc., are allowed to open, you too are going to have to collect this data, and you too are going to have to register under GDPR. And the ICO has already made clear that they're not going to allow any exceptions. So don't think, oh, well, we're only a little club with half a dozen members. We all know each other anyway. You still don't need to do it. So what are the other things to think about in regard to GDPR and this data that you've got to collect? And by the way, it doesn't matter whether you're collecting this data electronically or whether you're collecting it on pieces of paper. The rules are the same. And I will just cover something on the point of view of collecting on a piece of paper. Do not, and I can't stress this strongly enough, do not just have a clipboard with a sheet of paper on it where people write their name, their address, their telephone number, their email address, and it's got everyone else's details on that sheet as well. Do not do that, please, whatever you do, or you will land yourself in real problems. Each person must fill in their own separate sheet of paper, and you then collect those sheets of paper, collate those sheets of paper, and keep them together behind the bar or behind the counter somewhere out of sight of members of the public. That is rule number one. That's absolutely crucial. The next thing is data minimization. You should collect only the minimum amount of data that you need. So basically, name, address, telephone number, or email address. That's it. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need date of birth. You don't need what sex they are. You don't need anything else apart from that information plus the date and time that they enter your premises. That's the other crucial thing, because obviously if someone does go down with COVID-19, then the NHS Track and Trace program is going to need to track people who were in your premises at the same time as the person with COVID-19. So that's the second thing. The third thing is fair use. Be aware why you're gathering the information. You're gathering the information to assist national efforts to track infected individuals or those who may have come into contact with such individuals. It's important that the data you collect is only used for that purpose. Don't think, oh, well, now I can build up a nice little contact list of people coming into my bar, and then later I can use it for marketing. Well, you can't with this data. Now, you can get around that by having an additional consent box on the form that people fill in. But by default, you can't use this data for anything other than the NHS tracking. In terms of who you disclose this data to, this is the next rule, in terms of who you disclose the data to, you should only disclose it to those bodies responsible for contact tracing, i.e. Public Health England or the NHS. You shouldn't reveal it to anyone else. As I've always said, it's important you have a policy that informs your customers why you're collecting this information and that you'll find on the pro forma policy which we've made available on our website for you to download. It's very important that you store the data securely, so don't just leave the pieces of paper laying about. Make sure you file them somewhere, and I would suggest that you bundle them together so you know that all the forms completed on one day 
are all in one bundle. That's going to make it much simpler if you do need to provide the information to NHS for track and trace. And then there's the question of how long you keep this data. And the government has said that you need to keep the data for 21 days, so three weeks. So A, make sure you keep the data for 21 days. That's important. Uh, B, make sure you only keep it for 21 days. That's important too. So after 21 days, you need to destroy it. So, so if it's on a computer, you delete the records. If it's not on a computer, if you're storing the data on pieces of paper, then you need to make sure you destroy those pieces of paper. And again, it's very important there how you destroy them. Don't just rip them up and throw them in the bin. Make sure you have a cross-cut shredder and use that to destroy the pieces of paper. That, again, is really, really important. And again, on our website, if you go to our COVID-19 for pubs and restaurants page, you will find details there, not just of the sample privacy policy, which we're providing to you, but also links to suitable shredders, which you can purchase and use those to destroy the documents afterwards. And one other thing to think about is if you are using a third-party company for your bookings and using them to collect this information, then you must make sure that you have a data controller data processor agreement between you as the pub or restaurant, because you are the data controller, and that company because they are the data processor. Now, it's too complicated to explain data controller data processor agreements in a few minutes of a broadcast like this, so if you're not sure that how to handle that situation where you are the data controller and they are the data processor, then please get in touch with us. Please send us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will be very pleased to help you. The final thing I would say is make sure that you keep the whole process of collecting the data from customers as simple and painless as possible. So train your staff because if your staff are knowledgeable, they like to be able to reassure customers, earning their trust and diffusing any potential challenges or, or any difficult situations. It's really not that difficult to do, but there are steps to take and it is very important that between now and the 4th of July, you take those steps. Stay home, stay safe. From requests to our help desk, we know that as people are returning to work, one of the issues which people are having and are unsure about with GDPR and COVID-19 is quite how you should proceed if you want to take your employees' temperatures when they come to work and also how you deal with visitors to your office and whether you can take their temperature. Well, first thing to say, I think, is make sure that you actually need to take someone's temperature. What are you going to do with that information if you know it? If you're going to use it as a judge of whether to allow people into the premises or not, then that's fine, you can do that. But you do need to just make sure you follow certain steps. Because if you're taking temperature readings, but you're not recording them against an individual's name, whether that individual is an employee or a visitor, for example, you're just compiling a report that includes the data as anonymous, then that doesn't constitute personal data and there's no GDPR implication. However, note that GDPR sets high standards for data to be anonymous. In many cases, it will not be necessary to retain temperature readings once satisfied that the individual does not have a high temperature and the information can therefore be destroyed immediately or even not recorded at all. But if a temperature reading is taken and then recorded against an individual's employee file or you're using that information to decide whether to allow someone into your building or not, then this will constitute personal data and GDPR will apply. And as this is regarded as being house data, you may only process the information on certain specific grounds under both GDPR and the Data Protection Act 2018. 
There were only two relevant grounds on which you could rely on to process this information. The first is that processing is necessary for the performance of rights and obligations in connection with employment. Given that neither the UK government nor the World Health Organization recommends taking employees' temperatures, it would be difficult, but not impossible, to argue this processing is necessary. That leaves consent, and there are well-documented difficulties with consent in employer-employee relationships because it's hard to argue that the employee is not under any pressure to give consent. Employers adopting temperature checks should be where they may find it difficult to show their employees are freely consented. If the, particularly if the employee knows that they won't be allowed into the premises if they refuse. For these reasons, temperature checks will generally only be appropriate in higher risk settings such as healthcare. I would also add places like hairdressers and nail salons into that list. But in deciding whether to initiate a program of temperature checking, or for that matter other COVID-19 related data processing activities, especially those that give details of health, race or ethnic origin, employers need to comply with the general compliance requirements of GDPR. The main thing of this is making sure that before you do any of this, before you start collecting any of this data, you carry out a documented data protection impact assessment to ensure that the collection and processing of the temperature data complies with the core requirements of GDPR. And those requirements include being transparent about how you will provide employees with information about the data processing, having a clearly defined business purpose for the processing and ensuring the data will not be used for any incompatible purpose, ensuring the added data is adequate, relevant and the minimum necessary to achieve the purpose, and enabling individuals to exercise their rights on the data just as they could on any other personal data. So, when considering whether you want to carry out or need to carry out a temperature check on your employees or your visitors, the ICO recommends considering the specific circumstances of your workplace. What type of work do you do? What type of premises do you have? And if the person has a temperature such that they can't work in your premises, could they still work from home? Now, many of you may never have carried out a data protection impact assessment. And if that's the case and you need help doing it, then please do get in contact with us. Just send us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will contact you and give you advice on how we can help you perform the data protection impact assessment. But it is really important that you follow the right step if you are going to record the temperature data from your employees and visitors. We've been nominated for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards. Now we need your help. Please vote for us. To vote, just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. In the search box on that page, search for GDPR Weekly Show. Check that our logo appears and cast your vote. Go on, do it today. Voting closes at midday on Monday the 6th of July 2020. One of the impacts of COVID-19 in the UK has been that children have not been sitting their exams as they normally would. And so instead of the exam boards taking the answers to exams and giving grades that way, teachers are conducting and submitting pupil assessments which will be used to award pupils grades. And not surprisingly, the parents and indeed the children in some cases are asking to see the details of those exam scripts. And so the ICO has received a number of queries about whether the exam scripts exemption will still apply in these unusual circumstances. The answer from the ICO is that yes, they will. The exam scripts exemption will still apply to the information used to award students grades. What this means is that 
until the date that the grades are officially announced, schools and colleges have longer response times allowed for requests for access to pupil assessment information. The time frame for responding to these requests are either within five months of receiving the request or within 40 days of the exam results being announced, whichever date is earliest. Requests made after the results were announced need to be dealt with as they would for a normal subject access request, i.e. the school or college has 30 days to reply to the request. However, because of the unusual circumstances we're in this year with COVID-19, the ICO has indicated that it will take a slightly lenient attitude on this 30 days, but I would say still try to aim to satisfy all requests within 30 days if the requests are received by the school or college after the official exam results are announced. If you're a teacher or an administrator from a store or college and you have any queries about exam results, exam scripts and requirements under GDPR, then please feel free to get in contact with us via an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Bill Andre received a £50,000 grant in the Fast Start competition by Innovate UK to build a distributed ledger platform to store COVID-19 related certificates to support workers' safe return to the workplace. By the end of August 2020, Billon will provide a fully functioning prototype for publishing, sharing and verifying a wide range of workplace training or medical test documents as a back-end system for any company or government issue of certificates. With businesses and governments around the world struggling to limit the health and economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, the solution addresses three key challenges. How to prove who has completed training or has a test result, including linking multiple certificates to an identity. How to ensure the privacy of individuals' personal health and work records. And how to provide proof in a hands-free or reduced contact manner. David Putz, Chief Growth Officer of Billon, said... Billon wants to do its part to get employees back to work safely and for the economy to stay open. With this project, we want to encourage companies and health organisations to provide proper training and testing and to take advantage of new blockchain and identity management technology to equip people to prove they have an authentic certificate while hiding private data from those who would exploit it. We need solutions that protect people and their data. This project will deliver such a solution, he said. It's understood that the prototype aims to be a plug-and-play solution that augments any existing issue of a certificate by providing the distributed ledger innovation behind the scenes. Companies will be able to connect their existing systems via APIs, so there should be minimal integration costs. Users will be able to control their certificates on their mobile phones and show them when needed in a user-friendly way. The plan is that public bodies such as health organisations could certify essential standards for returning to work. For example, that a worker has completed specialised training or has medically established COVID-19 immunity. Companies who train their workers, such as airlines, can issue certificates. Issuers of other professional, vocational or education certificates, diplomas, licences, certified statements and other documents can also make use of Billon's distributed ledger technology to ensure workplace safety. The goal is to allow certificate holders to safely go back to work while businesses have certainty that employees undertook required training or tests. It's an approach similar to that taken by other Billon clients, including the Polish Credit Reporting Bureau, BIK, energy company Toron, and the Polish chapter of IEEE, which all use Billon's trusted document management system to store and publish high-value documents on-chain. While the global debate continues over the privacy implications of many other approaches to pandemic tracking, 
Buzon Solution uniquely applies distributed ledger or blockchain technology to deliver immutable tamper-free solutions designed to comply with GDPR and other privacy regulations. Certificates are linked to the identity of the user. There's an encrypted with keys that only the user and the issuer can use so that other companies using the platform or even the network administrator of the platform cannot see any private data. Another unique trait of the approach is that document validity can be programmed for a specific duration or under other guidelines. The ledger ensures that each certificate will be automatically updated as the pandemic situation evolves. Against the background of ongoing social distancing, which I think we all have to accept is going to be in place for quite some time, at least the next few months, if not the next few years, Belong's ability to make documents available for trusted verification without the need for personal contact could reduce administrative burdens and overcome obstacles to re-employing people. The ability to ensure quick and trusted verification is also key to providing a safe environment to everyone, limiting the spread of the virus. Billon is one of the 800 projects selected from more than 8,600 applications to the Fast Start competition launched in April by Innovate UK. The grants provide technology and research-focused businesses resources to develop new ways to work, to build resilience in industries such as delivery services, food manufacturing, retail and transport, and to support people at home during the coronavirus outbreak. Other projects to benefit from the funding include virtual reality training platforms for surgeons, virtual farmers markets, and other innovation born of the coronavirus pandemic. For Innovate UK, the executive chair, Dr Ian Campbell, said... Businesses from all over the UK have answered our call rapidly to meet the challenges we face today and in the future through the power of innovation. The ideas we have seen can truly make a significant impact on society, improve the lives of individuals and enable businesses to prosper in challenging circumstances. And now, the rest of this week's news. If you're a regular listener to the GGPR Weekly Show, you will know that we've been following developments for the data breach at Capital One. We previously reported that a magistrate's court in the US had ordered Capital One to release a report that they had prepared by a company called Mediant into the data breach or the security incident. Capital One weren't happy with that judgment, and so not surprisingly, they appealed to the next highest court. They appealed to the district court to have that decision of the magistrate's court overturned because they don't want to release this report from Mediant particularly since there were various class actions taking place against Capital One and they obviously don't want to add fuel to the fire by allowing the people undertaking that class action to see the report of this professional body into the data breach of Capital One and quite what went wrong. On June 25th, 2020, District Court Judge Anthony Trunga affirmed that the magistrate's court decision, i.e. supported the decision, and ordered Capital One to produce the report to the class action group as had been requested originally by the magistrate's court. To give a bit of background for those who have not been following the story, in November 2015, Capital One retained FireEye Inc, trading as Mandiant, to provide support in case of a data breach or security incident. When a breach occurred in March 2019, Capital One's outside counsel, outside legal counsel, called on Mandiant. While they executed a new letter of agreement, the analysis requested from Mandiant was the same as that outlined in the original 2015 scope of work. Since the data breach, several class actions have been filed and a multi-district litigation is currently pending in the Eastern District of Virginia, captioned in the Capital One Consumer Data Breach Litigation Case No. 1, Total 19-MD2915. 
There is no valid argument that the Mandant report does not qualify as relevant and responsive information. However, Chapter 1 argues that it was shielded from discovery by the attorney work product doctrine. Plaintiffs filed a motion to compel its production and on May 26, 2020, Magistrate Judge John Anderson granted the plaintiff's motion, finding that Chapter 1 failed to meet its burden of establishing a valid privilege. As we said, Chapter 1, unsurprisingly, appealed to the Magistrate's Judge's ruling and sought relief from the District Court Judge under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 72A. The Magistrate Judge's decision was subject to evaluation under a clearly erroneous or contrary-to-law standard. The court considered whether the order failed to apply or misapplied relevant statutes, case law or procedure. The district court focused on whether the report was compiled because of the prospect of litigation. The court questioned whether the prospect of litigation was the driving force behind the preparation of the Mandiant report. Despite retention by outside counsel, the court found that Mandiant's investigation would have been conducted and the report compiled in materially the same way whether or not there had been any litigation or counsel involved. The court also agreed with the magistrate judge that Chapter 1's broad distribution of the report showed that the Mandiant report was significant for regulatory and business reasons and underscored that business purpose. The court downplayed the prospect of potential litigation. The court agreed with the magistrate judge that there is no question that at the time Mandiant began its instant response services in July 2019, there was a very real potential that Chapter 1 would be facing substantial claims following its announcement of the data breach. Chapter 1's website confirms that the breach resulted in access to consumer and small business credit card applications from 2005 to 2019, transaction data from certain customers and about 140,000 social security numbers and information from 80,000 bank accounts. Even before the full extent of the breach was known, and a report compiled, Chapter 1 almost certainly had reason to believe that this would become a litigation event. Rather than a subjective or even objective analysis of the potential for litigation, the court focused on whether the report would have been compiled in the same form, whether it had been a threat of litigation or not. On that point, Chapter 1 failed to demonstrate any input, direction or strategic guidance from its outside legal counsel. The report was compiled as it had been envisaged for business critical purposes in 2015, and without any focus on the potential for litigation. That contributed significantly to Chapter 1's inability to establish any legal privilege. Thus, Chapter 1 was ordered to produce the Mandiant Report forthwith. If Chapter 1 is still unhappy, then their next option would be to seek permission for an interlocutory review by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. So, what are the implications of this? Well, the District Court's affirmance and acceptance of the Magistrate Judge's order confirms the importance of having proper protocols and protections in place when engaging an external, or even an internal, expert to assist in litigation-relevant analysis. If a written report is required, companies should keep all certain key points in mind, along with one new point emphasised by the District Court as to active involvement by outside legal counsel in the report itself. Those points are that there should be a clearly defined legal scope of work, the consultant should be paid by the legal counsel and not by the company itself. Outside legal counsel must be seen to have active involvement in the outcome of the report. The report must have very narrow internal distribution, i.e. must only be sent to very selected members of the company's staff and shouldn't be circulated externally to any non-legal bodies and there should be definite proof of tracking of where the document has been distributed. So the Chapter 1 case rolls on and on, 
and we will continue to follow it on the GDPR Weekly Show and bring you updates as and when there's any news. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, and one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mugs for runners-up. So don't delay, do it today. Hey Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com At its Worldwide Developers Conference on Monday this week, largely it's thought in response to GDPR and indeed CCPA, the Californian Privacy Act in the US, Apple announced a series of privacy updates to its iOS ecosystem that will place further barriers in the way of companies trying to cash in on in-app advertising on the Apple iOS platform. While Apple did not outright kill its mobile advertising tool IDFA this week, the new consent presents a significant hurdle. The new update to be included in iOS 14, iPadOS 14 and tvOS 14 will require app developers, including media owners and brands, to seek consent from iOS device users in order for third parties also known as app monetization partners, to access the user's data. This, in effect, makes IDFA an opt-in feature for users and advertisers will no longer be able to target them by default. Apple called this a nutrition label for privacy. App Store product pages will feature summaries of developers' self-reported privacy practices with the wording in layman's terms. In addition to this, the company is also further rolling out sign-in with Apple, whereby users can choose to share their approximate location with app developers when granting access, rather than their precise location. While Apple makes much of its transparency regarding consumer data, its communications with the ad industry are more opaque. The announcements and the subsequently released documentation have led to varying interpretations of what the latest announcements say about Apple's long-term plan. What is clear is that iOS 14's transparency requirements will have repercussions for the digital media ecosystem. The likely effect of all this will be a reduction in revenue from publishers' iOS inventory, a phenomenon that's already been observed with Apple's tracking limitations in its Safari web browser, as targeting users will become much more difficult. By association, supply-side ad tech such as ad exchanges and performance ad networks, which typically get paid by result, will also be noted to be impacted. However, the announcements fall significantly short of what some had feared, like Apple pulling the plug on IDFA altogether. For instance, a pending update to Apple's SKA ad network will facilitate ad networks with approved privacy policies to help advertisers attribute which ad placement on third-party apps generated downloads. It's been suggested that iOS 14's transparency requirements are an acknowledgement of the importance advertising plays for the app economy while providing enhanced privacy assurances to the public. We've been nominated for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Broadcast Awards. Now we need your help. Please vote for us. To vote, just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. In the search box on that page, search for GDPR Weekly Show. Check that our logo appears and cast your vote. Go on.
do it today. Voting closes at midday on Monday the 6th of July 2020. On Friday this week, the New Zealand Parliament passed amendments to the New Zealand Privacy Act with the unanimous support of all parties. It's good to note that the country's parliament is working above political divisions when such a fundamental right as privacy is at stake, an intelligent sign of strong democratic foundation in today's turbulent world. The new Privacy Act introduces, amongst other things, several key changes to the law, which bring privacy protections in line with global standards like GDPR and strengthen the role of the New Zealand Privacy Commissioner. Specifically, the Act clarifies that it applies to all organisations that carry on business in New Zealand, regardless of their place of establishment. The Privacy Commissioner may now issue enforceable compliance notices to organisations where the Commissioner considers the organisation has breached the Act, and organisations that suffer a data breach which has caused or has the potential to cause serious harm to affected individuals must notify the Commissioner and affected individuals, and may be subject to criminal penalties for failing to notify the Commissioner without reasonable cause. New Zealand can be justifiably proud of its latest developments to the Privacy Act and to now move to the next step of implementing a new regime before it takes effect on the 1st of December 2020. New Zealand is scheduled to host and chair the Asia-Pacific Economic Forum in 2021. COVID-19 permitted, of course, because New Zealand is one of the countries in the world to be in a rare position at the moment to being relatively clear of COVID-19. But nonetheless, it's scheduled to host the economic forum in 2021 and it will be a unique opportunity to promote privacy towards other regional economies. The New Zealand government is keen to argue that privacy protection in line with global best practices can help in economic recovery. They both positively impact investors' confidence as well as may help a country's own services exporting industry reassure their overseas customers that they operate within the parameters of strong privacy laws. So we welcome this update from New Zealand and we hope it shows that the fundamentals established in GDPR are becoming established more around the world by more and more countries and that's got to be good for everyone. The more we can move towards a global standard on data privacy, I personally think the better world we're living as far as sharing data and knowing that our data is secure is concerned. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A government department on the Isle of Man has been hit with a fine for a repeated failure to supply personal data held on an individual this week. The Isle of Man Information Commissioner Ian MacDonald has imposed a fine of £12,250 on the Department of Home Affairs for the offence. It's the first time such a penalty has been used in the Isle of Man since GDPR was introduced two years ago. Ms MacDonald says everyone has a fundamental right of access to personal data and believes that this will serve as a warning to other data holders. If we receive any further updates from Mr MacDonald, or indeed the Isle of Man government, we will of course bring them to you in the future edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Twitter suffered a further data breach this week and was forced to email its business clients to tell them that personal information may have been compromised. Unbeknown to users, billing information for some clients was stored in the browser cache, Twitter said. In an email to its clients, Twitter said it was possible others could have accessed this personal information. 
The personal data includes email addresses, phone numbers and the last four digits of the client's credit card number. Twitter says there is no evidence that clients' billing information was compromised. The data breach is understood to affect businesses which use Twitter's advertising and analytics platforms. It's not yet clear how many businesses may have been affected. Twitter said it became aware of the issue on the 20th of May and has since fixed the problem. In an email to affected users, the firm said, We're very sorry this happened. We recognise and appreciate the trust you place in us and are committed to earning that trust every day. It is not believed that any personal Twitter users have been affected. If we receive any update from this, either from Twitter or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal, we help people get jobs. It is understood that one person has been dismissed and two others have left South Gloucestershire Council after three serious data breaches by staff. In one incident, a letter containing a foster child's address was disclosed to the birth mother of the child, the council said. The three breaches were among the 198 data security incidents at the council during the last year, according to an annual report. The council said it was working with staff to reduce the number of incidents to the lowest level possible. The three breaches by children's services staff involved sensitive personal data and were reported to the ICO, to the Information Commissioner's Office. It's understood that in a second incident, a council officer disclosed to a father the identity of a neighbour who had reported concerns about the father's ability to look after his children. And in the third breach, sensitive personal data was included in a report and sent to the mother of a child who was thought to be at risk from that person. No disciplinary action was taken after the foster child's address was disclosed accidentally because the council investigation found it was a genuine one-off mistake due to a misunderstanding, a spokesperson said. But the council had terminated the employment contract of the officer who revealed to a father the identity of his complainant and the two officers responsible for the third breach had left after procedures to manage their performance had been started by the council. Deputy Council Leader John Hunt, who is also the Cabinet Member for Children and Young People, said the vast majority of the incidents were down to human error by very busy staff. It's very simple errors that happen and a lot of it is just typing the wrong email address in but they're not usually significant data breaches and they're very easily rectified, he told a meeting of the council's cabinet. We have to say that whilst we agree with Mr Hunt that it is human error, we don't share his view that these data breaches aren't significant. Clearly to the families involved, they are very significant. And a significant data breach doesn't need to involve thousands of people. It can just be a handful of people or even one person if that does real damage to either the emotional or physical health of that person. And in this case, I think that test is satisfied. So I really do hope that South Gloucestershire Council take action and rapidly improve the training of their staff in the whole area of GDPR because they are clearly having some weaknesses in that area at the moment. If we have any further update on this from South Gloucestershire Council, we will, of course, bring it to you on the GDPR Weekly Show. And we finish this week with news from Belgium that the Belgian Data Protection Authority has imposed a fine of €50,000 on an unnamed organisation for non-compliance with the GDPR conflict of interest requirement in the selection of its data protection officer. This is something which I think often gets overlooked and it's something where companies need to think carefully about who they appoint as their data protection officer if you need a data protection officer, not everyone does. 
But if you're in a situation that you have more than 250 employees or you're dealing with significant volumes of data, then you really should have a data protection officer. Where a lot of companies fail, and I spotted this in one company that I was working with this week, is that they will appoint one of the company directors or company shareholder as the data protection officer. And that is simply not allowed under GDPR because the data protection officer, the DPO, has to be able to take a truly independent view without fear or favour when looking at issues related to GDPR, whether that's a data breach, whether it's a data subject access request, whether it's a data protection impact assessment, whatever it is, the DPO must be able to take an independent view. Now, I'm going to take a commercial line here. Of course, one of the things that we are very proud of doing as a company is providing external data protection officer services, DPO services, to a number of organisations, both public and private sector, across the UK. But the reason that's successful is because we can provide that independence. Because we are an external body, because we're at that arm's length distance, then it's far easier for us to maintain an independent view when we're looking at issues as a company or as an organisation's DPO. Yes, you can argue the company pays us a fee for being their external DPO, but we don't take that into account when we're making our decisions. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is our professional standing. We've been working in this industry now for some 22 years and not prepared to throw that away on an individual case. But the second issue is that we're actually protected by legislation too because one of our clients who signed up for our external DPO service can't terminate our contract because they don't like what we've put in one of our reports as external DPO as long as we've used our professional judgment in coming to that decision and of course that's what we would always do. I will just do a note of encouragement here though to anyone of you who is acting as a DPO within a company who's employed by a company do have peace of mind that the same rules apply to you that whilst you have to take an independent view and that might sometimes mean having to argue with the management of your company the law precludes them from being able to dismiss you solely because you've written a report as DPO which they don't like the contents of that's actually your job your job is to be independent and I can't emphasize strongly enough how important it is, whether internal or external, that the DPO is allowed to be independent to get on with their job and to provide the correct GDPR guidance to the organisation that they're working with or for. If you'd like to know more about the DPO services that we provide, then please either check our website at www.gdprweeklyshow.com or drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our consultants will gladly talk you through the process. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again Same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.